be great to be part of a church where there was never any need to work through offense or conflict? Wouldn't that be amazing? I mean, think about it. The pastor would never make an offhand comment without thinking about how someone in the church might take it the wrong way. Uh, we would always do everything that we said we were going to do when we said we were going to do it. Everyone in the church would agree on all the issues that we face. From how we're going to staff the nursery, to how loud the worship music should be, to who we're going to vote for, all agreement all the time. And everyone in church leadership would exercise authority with perfect discretion and completely selfless motivations. Everyone who's under authority would follow leadership with perfect humility and would extend tons of grace to their leaders. Yeah, our, everybody's expectations for each other would be perfectly reasonable and never idealistic. And, and we would, we'd be able to leave behind all the wounds we've experienced in the past and our dysfunctional family backgrounds and the hurt we felt at other churches and that wouldn't influence in any way our relationships with one another. Doesn't that sound like a great church to be a part of? Wouldn't that be amazing? Here's the problem. I'm never going to be a part of a church like that. Because that perfect church would have to be made up of perfect people, and I am imperfect. I'd like to think that I'm mature, or that I'm at least having the character of Christ formed in me, that that shows up in how I relate to people a lot of the time, but I'm not perfect, and neither are you. I hope that doesn't come as a revelation to anyone, but we're imperfect. So being a part of a perfect church where there's never going to be any offense or conflict, that is not one of our options. But being a part of a healthy church, a church where we love one another deeply, and where we've learned how to work through offense and conflict, that is possible. It is possible to be a church that does not get sidetracked by offense. It's possible to be a church that does not allow small issues to metastasize into giant issues. It's possible to be a church where we extend grace and mercy to one another. It's possible to be a church that's a place of healing and honor and honesty with each other. It's possible to be a church that has relational shock absorbers built in so that we can handle the bumps that invariably come as we live in close community with one another. That kind of a church is possible. Chapel in the Pines could be that kind of a church. We grow toward that future as we grow in maturity and Christ-likeness so that we uh, offend each other less and less. But we also grow to that future as we learn how to deal with offense and conflict when it happens. And that's why we're in this series that we're concluding today called How to Be Offended. Because that's what we want to learn. As we've been uh, going through this series, I've been talking through a flow chart uh, to try to help us figure out how to deal with offense and conflict in healthy, God-honoring ways. And I will just say that you can have your very own limited edition, not really, but you can have your very own uh, flow chart. If you want the whole thing printed out, there's copies available in the foyer, kind of over by the world map. Grab one of those after the service. But we've been talking through this flow chart not because we can perfectly summarize everything there is to say about offense on one chart, but I do just want to summarize God's wisdom for dealing with offense, to work through it in those healthy ways, and that's what we've been going after. 
we've seen that the starting point is just recognizing that we feel offended by someone. The context here is personal relationships. It's dealing with those feelings of being wronged or emotionally injured in an interaction with another person. And our, our first step when we realize that is to ask, is this my offense? And if the answer is no, if we've taken on someone else's offense, then we want to promote reconciliation. We want to, first of all, not gossip about whatever's going on. And then we also want to uh, be a peacemaker in whatever ways we can. So we ask, is it my offense? If the answer is yes, then we ask, well, is this a current offense? Is this something that has not been faced and worked through? And if we realize the answer is no, that actually I'm feeling offense, I'm bothered by something that I've actually already worked through, then we may need to reaffirm forgiveness or work through forgiveness at a deeper level uh, with that person who wronged us. We may need to repent of resentment if we've been holding on to some bitterness. It's probably a good idea to rebuke spiritual opposition because one of the devil's favorite tactics is to uh, divide us and to sow dissension and he really wants to rob us of the benefit of forgiveness in our lives. And so since we know this is something he's up to, we can resist this and rebuke him from working that way in our lives. Now, if we recognize that actually this is a current offense, this is something that uh, I haven't worked through, then we ask the question, can I and should I overlook this offense? Instead of being easily angered, can I genuinely choose to move past this without lingering resentment toward that other person? We also ask, even if I can do that, should I, or would it perhaps be more loving to actually have the conversation with the person and address the issue for maybe their sake or the sake of others? Now, I, I've been saying as we go that dealing with offense is different than dealing with abuse. And this is one of the ways in which that's true. When we're dealing with abuse, we should never overlook it. Abuse should be confronted. It should be dealt with. It is, uh, it's unloving. It's wrong to counsel someone to just overlook abuse. It's unloving because you're, you're, you're leaving them in an abusive context. You're setting them up to continue to be abused. That's not loving to them. It's also, honestly, not loving to their abuser that this issue would never be confronted in their life, that they never be challenged on this. And it's not loving to the other people that could be abused by that abuser if this issue isn't dealt with. So when it's abuse, that repeated, systemic, purposeful uh, uh, mistreatment, we absolutely do not want to overlook it. But when it's offense, when it's way at that other end of the hurt spectrum, where it's something more minor, this is a question to ask. Is this something that I can just overlook? Can I give this person the benefit of the doubt? If I was in their place, would I want them to overlook this if I was the perpetrator? And so we consider, can I, should I overlook this offense? And if the answer is yes, that's a great outcome. Praise the Lord. We release that person. We bless them. We move on in freedom. But if we recognize, actually, no, I really, uh, I, I can't or I shouldn't over, just overlook this, then we need to take the important step of talking to that person one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, this is what Jesus says to do in Matthew 18, 15. And remember, when we looked at that last week, Jesus says, the win 
it, for that. The goal is that you'll win your brother over. You'll gain your brother. The goal is a restored, preserved relationship with that person. And because that's the goal, we're very thoughtful about how we approach those conversations. We want to approach him in a way that's going to lead to the best possible response from the other person so that there can be reconciliation in the relationship. And so we want to avoid making accusations or making assumptions. We want to start by asking questions and clarifying. We, we use I statements. And if we're on the other end of that, if someone comes to us and says, hey, I need to talk this through with you, we're receptive and responsive to that rather than being defensive. This is uh, another way in which dealing with offense is different than dealing with abuse. When we're dealing with an abusive situation, we don't want to counsel the abused person to talk to their abuser one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, that's, that's unhelpful. It's, it's often dangerous to do that, especially because there is almost always a power difference between the abuser and the person they're abusing. And so when it's a situation of abuse, other people should be involved from the start. Uh, we should not counsel someone who's being abused to confront their abuser one-on-one, -on -one, just because of the nature of abuse and the dynamics there. But again, when we're not dealing with abuse, when we're dealing with offense, uh, this is a crucial step to take. And often, this is all it takes to resolve the, the situation. Sometimes we discover, oh, there's a misunderstanding. And once we get that figured out, it's easy to move on. Or sometimes there's a genuine issue there, but talking to the person gives a chance to air it out, to express what's going on, and to come to a resolution. When we have these kind of conversations with people, we want to be willing to offer a good apology as appropriate. A good apology is one where you take personal responsibility, you commit to change, and you ask for forgiveness. Now, many times this will resolve the situation, and so we can release that person we can bless them, we move on in freedom, but what if it doesn't resolve it? Then what do we do? That's where we're picking things up today. Uh, and the next step we take, if talking to the person one-on-one -on -one doesn't resolve it, is that we talk again with others present. We talk again with others present. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that, quote, every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, when Jesus talks about the two or three witnesses there, he's referring to a principle of Old Testament law that's expressed in Deuteronomy 19.15. In the law, this is a provision for how you would get past a situation where it's just one person's word against the other. What do you do when it's just kind of a he said, he said situation? Well, you've got to involve other witnesses. You've got to bring other people in who can corroborate. And Jesus is applying that same principle here to this issue of offense between, between brothers and sisters, that if you're at an impasse where one person is saying, hey, what you did really offended me, and the other person says, well, that's dumb. I didn't mean it that way. They say, well, but it still hurt me. They say, well, but it shouldn't. You know, when you're at, or I didn't really say what you think I said. When you're at an impasse, how do you get through that You've got to involve other people in it. But notice the number of people Jesus says to involve. One or two others. Don't involve a large group. The kind of conversation and communication that needs to happen is going to happen better with fewer people. So you want to find those one or two others. And who are you looking for? Who should those people be 
if you're at a place where you need to take this step? Well, you're looking for people who, um, who will be well-respected by you and the person who offended you. Well-respected by both parties. Uh, it does not lead to a productive conversation if one party feels ganged up on. You know, if you come to them and say, all right, here's my two friends. You don't know them, and they've only heard my side of the story. They're super angry at you, and they're here to be a witness for what a jerk you are. Now, let's work this out. That's not going to work. So you're looking for people who have a depth of relationship or maybe a, a positional authority that they can speak to both parties and be heard by both parties. You're looking for someone who can help with communication, who can help translate between the parties so that each really understands what the other person is saying. You're, you're looking for someone who can, um, who can notice where the breakdown in communication is happening and help that be worked through. You're, you're, you're looking for someone who can uh, speak into the situation and if necessary say, hey, I really, need to, I really think you need to apologize for that or I don't think she meant that the way that you took it. You're looking for someone who can help you work through forgiveness if the conversation goes to that place, which you're really hoping it will. So that's the kind of person you're looking for. Now, if you're on the receiving end of this, if someone comes to you and says, would you be one of those people that can help work this out? Here's the situation. Here's what I've done. Would you meet with us and help us work this out? You want to pray for God's wisdom. You want to pray for God's grace. And then I want to encourage you to say yes to that opportunity. You know, if we're going to develop a culture where we don't hang on to offenses and stuff them, but we really learn how to work them through, then we've got to be willing to be these kind of mediators for one another. Even if we feel unqualified, we've got to be willing to help friends communicate and work things through. Now, if you, uh, so you, you, if you need to take this step, you think about who you're going to ask, you ask them, and then you go to the person who offended you, the person you have the issue with, and you say something like, hey, thanks for talking the other day. I don't feel like we got quite where we needed to get. I really care about our relationship, and I really want things to be right between us. So would you be willing to meet with me and so-and-so and see if we can come to a better resolution? Now, I said last week that, that um, having these kind of conversations in the first place is awkward for a lot of us. It's uncomfortable. We don't, we don't want to initiate. And if someone comes to us and says, hey, I need to have this kind of conversation with you, it's hard for us to say yes to that because so many of us don't like confrontation. We're, we're conflict averse. But, and so to think about having a second conversation that's along the same lines is maybe especially difficult. But if we want to have a, a culture of reconciliation, if we want to collectively get better at dealing with offense, then we've got to be willing to have these kind of conversations with each other. So uh, we, we take this step of, of talking again with others present. And if that solves the situation, if that resolves it, then that's great. We can you know, forgive the person, release them, bless them, and move on in freedom. But what if it doesn't? If talking again with others present doesn't uh, resolve it, then we want to uh, include church leaders in the conversation. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 18, 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
Now, what telling it to the church looks like is different depending on the context. This was different in a first century house church than it would be in a 21st century American megachurch or even a church like chapel. I strongly suggest that if you need to take this step, that you talk to church leaders representing the whole church. I can tell you as someone who attempts to tell things to the church on a regular basis, it's hard to do that well. Uh, You run the risk of uneven communication. Not everyone hears what you're trying to say. Not everyone checks email. Not everyone is in a service on a Sunday. Not everyone, you know, gets text messages, whatever it is. So uneven communication is an issue and miscommunication that people don't always understand what you're saying in the way that you mean it and what you're trying to say. So it's really hard to do this. And, and also think, remember that our goal here, the end result is that we'd have restored relationships. Let's say that happens. Let's say it works. Then you've got to tell the whole church that it's been resolved. Can you do that adequately and thoroughly? And if not, then you end up with some people who have only heard half the story, and it's likely to be a distorted or misunderstood half at that. So I'm really encouraging you if, you, if you need to take this step, come to one of the elders, come to myself and say, hey, here's what's going on, here's what I've tried to do, would you meet with us and see if we can work this out? And a couple of us will meet with you, we'll listen to you and to the other person, we'll do our best to help you communicate with each other, we'll speak the truth in love to you, and we'll see if we can come to a resolution. We actually have an example in scripture of this step of reconciliation being taken in Acts 15, 1 and 2. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, so we <clears throat> got the frog in my throat that won't go away. <clears throat> go away, frog. <clears throat> All right. Okay. So there's been no small amount of debate on this. We can assume that they've already taken the steps of talking one-on-one and including uh, others in the conversation, but they're still at an impasse. They still are at a place where um, they can't decide, do people have to become, do Gentiles have to become Jewish to become Christian? There's a disagreement here. And so their answer is, we're going to talk to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. This is what they're going to do. And they, in doing this, they're acknowledging that they're under the authority of these leaders. They're understanding that whatever these men say is going to be the answer and it's going to resolve this disagreement. And so that's what they do. And they're, again, it, and it's key to notice that they're acknowledging that they're under the leadership of these people. They're under their authority. I think that's important for us to see in our context as well. When we take this step of going to church leaders and including them, we're acknowledging that we're under their authority. And what they say we're going to take as the answer to the situation. If they tell us we're wrong or that we're partially wrong, we're going to accept that. And that's why doing this uh, step makes a lot of sense to do it with people who are part of the same church that we are. You know, if you have a disagreement with someone who's a part of another church, you can include elders and pastors in that conversation. 
but it just is different when your pastor isn't their pastor. You're not under the same authority, and so it just feels different. Um, so we, uh, when we can't get there through the personal conversations and including a couple others, you include church leaders in the conversation. And even at this point, the goal is that there would be reconciliation. The goal is that you'd be able to work through it, that there could be forgiveness, that you'd be able to release the person and bless them, and you both would be able to move on in freedom. That's what we're aiming for. But what if that doesn't happen? What if that doesn't happen? Well, um, this is sad. It is not what we want to be the case, but sometimes that's, that's what happens. Uh, Jesus actually uh, indicates that there, this will happen from time to time. Let's look at the whole context there in, uh, in Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the, this is the final step. And what, uh, part of what we're doing when we take this step is we're acknowledging that the relationship has changed. And we, and we grieve that. We acknowledge that the relationship has changed and we grieve that. Did you notice there in those verses in Matthew 18 the change from brother or sister to pagan or tax collector? And it's not that this person's condition before God has changed, but the felt reality of our relationship with them has changed. It says treat them as you would, as if they were a pagan or a tax collector. The way we relate to them now is different. The relationship has been breached. Up to this point, as we've been working through this process, it's been strained, but now the relationship has changed. It's changed, but there is still some degree of relationship. We still are treating them in some way. We're not ignoring them. We're not never seeing them again, but it's a different kind of relationship. We're treating them as we would a pagan or a tax collector. And I think when Jesus gave that instruction to his disciples, he was assuming that they were going to treat pagans and tax collectors the same way that he treated pagans and tax collectors. And we have lots of examples in the Gospels of how Jesus did that, especially with the tax collectors more so than the pagans. But what do we see? How did Jesus treat tax collectors? Well, he ate with them. He invited them to follow him. He loved them, but he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't confide in them the secrets of the kingdom of God like he did with his disciples. Jesus did not hate or avoid tax collectors. He did not urge others to hate them or avoid them. That was the approach to the Pharisees towards tax collectors, sinners, and pagans, but that was not Jesus' approach. So how should we relate to people with whom we have an unresolved, outstanding offense? Well, we still love them. And we still may be around them from time to time. Uh, if you're related to them, they're still family. You're still going to see them. If you're a part of uh, the same church with them, you're still going to be worshiping and fellowshipping with them. You're still going to have contact with them, but you're not going to entrust yourself to them. You're not going to confide in them the way that you perhaps once did. You're acknowledging the relationship is different, and you're going to be more guarded with them than you used to be. You're not going to hate them. You're not going to gossip about them. You're not going to tell others to hate them. 
but you're going to acknowledge the relationship is different than it was. And you're going to grieve that. Uh, you also, though, are going to have to forgive that person. And you're going to have to forgive them even if there's no apology or acknowledgement on their part that they did anything wrong. I don't know that forgiveness is ever easy, but it's perhaps less difficult when the person who wronged us confesses, they repent, they ask for forgiveness. But even when that doesn't happen, we still can and we still must forgive them. Forgiveness, you know, it's nice for them, it's good for the relationship, but it's essential for us, for our emotional health, for our spiritual well-being, so there's not a barrier in our relationship with God, so that we can have peace and move on in freedom, we've got to be able to forgive, and we can do that regardless of whether they repent and apologize or not. We can face the situation and the pain that it caused We lament that before the Lord, we grieve that, and when we do that, we receive mercy from God. And then having received mercy from God, we're able to extend mercy to that other person, even if it's not with them face to face, even if it's just in our hearts and before the Lord, we extend mercy to them. We say, I'm not going to give you what you deserve because I didn't get what I deserve from God. And we release them, we hand them over, we hand what they did to us over to God, And we lay down that offense and we resolve that we're not going to pick it back up again. We choose that we are not going to live reactionary lives because of what they have done. And we're going to bless them. We're going to pray that God would do good things in their life. We're not blessing the dysfunction, the immaturity, the selfishness, the narcissism, the whatever it was that, that they, the way they offended us, but we're blessing them. We bless them. And when we do this, we can move on in freedom. We experience freedom when we do what, uh, what Romans 12, 18 says to do. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's going to be grief and sadness. And depending on how close we were to the person, there might be profound grief and sadness. But we can experience freedom when as far as it depends on us, we're at peace. When we know I've done my part, I've released I'm not holding on to resentment. I've blessed them. As far as I can do that, do it, I'm at peace with them. And when we do that, we experience freedom. We, we, we grieve the changed relationship. We release them. We bless them. We move on in freedom. And we stay open to future reconciliation. We say, okay, I, um, we, we can't work through it now, but I'm not giving up on this relationship. I'm not giving up hope that there someday could be a restoration here. We pray for changed hearts. We pray for openness to further conversation in the future. We may not be able to do much more than pray. Uh, it, it's counterproductive to keep asking them to talk when they've said, I don't want to talk or I don't think we need to talk. It, it probably wouldn't do much good to talk more until there's been a change of heart. But we're saying, as far as it depends on me, on my side of the relationship, I'm willing to work for reconciliation If and when they're willing to re-engage, I'm willing. It's a yes on my end. We stay open to future reconciliation. This uh, last box on the chart is where we need to land if the person is not willing to engage in the process with us. Whether we make it through the whole process and can't get there or whether they won't engage, this is where we need to end up. If we realize that we need to have a one-on-one conversation with someone but they're not willing to have that conversation with us. 
or they are wanting to ignore that anything's wrong. This is where we've got to go. If they start to engage the process but bail on it at some point, this is where we've got to go. We've got to acknowledge the relationship has changed. We grieve that. We forgive them. We bless them. We stay open to future reconciliation, and we move on in freedom. This uh, is the end of the flow chart. But I know it's just the beginning of a process for a lot of us. When we realize that we feel offended by someone, we want to ask these diagnostic questions. Is this my offense? Is this a current offense? Can I or should I overlook this offense? And depending on the answer to those questions, we may need to take the crucial step of talking to the person one-on-one. We talk to the person, and if that resolves the conflict, that's fantastic. We can release them and bless them and move on in freedom. But if that doesn't resolve it, then we need to talk again with others present. We find those one or two others who can help be mediators in this situation, who can help us communicate with each other, who can speak the truth in love to us and be heard by both parties. If that doesn't resolve the situation, then we include church leaders as a way of telling to the church we include leaders in the church in the conversation and the church leaders can, can meet with you and they can try to help you communicate well and see if there's a way to work it out and extend forgiveness and come to a resolution. And if that doesn't work, then we're at that final stage of saying, okay, I've done all that I can do. I did as far as it depends on me, I did it all, and now I'm going to forgive. Even if they don't, forgive, if they don't apologize, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to release them, bless them, so that I can move on in health and freedom still open to future reconciliation, but letting it be for the time being, uh, knowing that the relationship has changed. This is uh, the beginning of a process for some of us. There's work for some of us to do going forward. Uh, You know, maybe over these past three Sundays as I've been talking through this, there's just been a face that's been coming to mind, a name, a situation, and you realize, you know what, things are not right in this relationship. And remember, we talked last week, whether you're the offender or the offended, if you know something's not right, it's on you to talk to the other person and initiate that conversation. So some of us are realizing there's a relationship in my life where I've got to do that. For others, perhaps we're realizing there's actually a few or several that I probably have to have some conversations with. Maybe you've been through a season where there was a lot of offense and there's more than one person that, that has offended, has wronged you in some way. Again, it hasn't risen to the level of abuse, but it's an offense, it's a hurt, and the relationship is not right. If you find yourself in that place, I want to encourage you to, to take steps to work through those offenses. Chip away at this. Uh, start, honestly, start with the lighter offenses and the easier conversations. Gain some momentum for the harder conversations. And know that you're going to engage in this process, having it sometimes to grieve and forgive and release and bless without getting an apology from the other person. It's wonderful if that happens, but if not, you're still going to have to do the work. And if you've got to work through some offense in your life, I encourage you to get a friend to support you as you do this. Don't tackle this on your own. Get a friend who can pray for you, who can encourage you, who you can even ask to hold you accountable to have the conversations you need to have who can be with you in this time so that you can work through this. And friends, I just want to remind you that the goal of this 
is restoration and freedom. Look, I've mentioned it before. I'll just remind you again. I don't like conflict. It does not energize me. It's not my favorite thing. I want everybody to like me. And if they don't, then I I don't want to deal with that. And maybe you're like me to some degree, and the thought of having these conversations and working through offense is uncomfortable. I just want to tell you from personal experience and what we see in God's word, working through the offense while uncomfortable is less uncomfortable than holding on to the offense. The cost is smaller to, to face if it feels awkward or difficult or whatever. The cost is less to do that than to hold on to offense and let it fester and create bitterness and resentment. And listen, if you have the conversation, you take the plunge, you work it through, you've really got a shot at a restored relationship with that person and freedom for yourself. So for that, for that reason, with that motivation in mind, I want to encourage you, Engage in this process, however, if it's your situation, but let's do this so that we can be the kind of church that, while imperfect, can be a healthy church where we work through this stuff and where we each can feel this kind of peace, freedom in our lives. Can we do that? Can we do that? Amen. I want to invite the worship team to come because we do want to worship together before we close the service. But just while they're coming, I'm going to invite you to just close your, he- close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment just to create a private space for you and the Lord just going to give you again that opportunity to reflect on what I'm saying and hopefully what the Lord's been saying through me and through his word today and just give you a moment to respond however he's leading into. There's a relationship that you need to have, you know, work through some offense in. Acknowledge that before the Lord. Maybe you just need to receive some mercy and comfort from God in this moment because of some hurt that's done. Just ask him for that. Just take this moment before the Lord. As we're in this moment of prayer, the thought came to my mind that I wonder if there's some people who have taken the step of talking to leaders in the church about an offense, uh, only to feel like um, they cited against you, they responded to you in a way that actually made the situation worse instead of better, and so the thought of going to church leaders, even different leaders in a different church, is, is really hard to think about doing because there's that pain there. And for anyone who may have experienced that, I just want to say I'm sorry. I I don't think I was the leader that did that to you. But as a leader in the church, I'm sorry that that happened. And I'm sorry that that was not handled in a way that led to healing and reconciliation and restoration. I'm sorry. And again, as as a leader in God's church, I'm asking for forgiveness. And I'm praying for God's mercy for you. Heavenly Father, may we be a church at Chapel of Pines that navigates offense and conflict well from the, the elders and pastors to uh, just everyone in the church that we would engage in this in, in healthy ways. Lord, I would love for there to be just less, less conflict and offense. Uh, let us live out unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Let us love one another deeply from the heart and sacrifice for each other and May there be less and less offense and conflict, but when it happens, if it happens, may we be people who work through it well, that the, the enemy's plans against us will not succeed, that we will not be a divided church, but a unified church that loves each other, that experiences restoration and reconciliation in relationships, and that all of us who are part of this church family would be a part of the solution for that, whether it's something that we have to work through for ourselves 
whether we need to respond to someone who's been offended by us or whether we need to stand alongside friends as they work through us. Lord, may we be that kind of a church. May that increasingly be a part of our church culture, a place of restoration and reconciliation. May it be, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. For right now, I do want to bless you, and I bless you in the name of Jesus with the peace of God, the peace that passes all understanding, that it would guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, that it would guard what you feel and what you think, that the peace of God would make a tangible difference in your thoughts this week. To every anxious thought, we say, be stilled in Jesus' name. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And to every anxious feeling, we say, be stilled in Jesus' name. Let the peace of Christ rule. I, I pray, God, that your peace would settle on us like a blanket, that it would be a felt reality in our lives as we go from this place, and that your peace, Lord, would, your sense of shalom, that well-being for all of who we are would affect us physically and emotionally and, and, in our, and mentally and in our relationships, Lord, that we'd be people of peace. Uh, being peacemakers and being peaceable in our relationships with others. Not the kind of peace that hides a fence or papers over it, but that works to see that resolution that you desire. So Lord, may your peace go with us as you go with us as we go from this place. Chapel family, as we go from this time, we are blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Bless you.